Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Matt. How are you doing tonight? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, great, thanks. It's been a good two weeks. Oh, good. Yeah. It's a good time of year just to kick back, relax, and reflect on the last year or so and spend time with the family. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we did a fair bit of reflecting on the previous year in our last episode. Yes, we did. Have you thought any more on anything we spoke about that you want to share? Actually, one thing we didn't cover while, while I'm thinking about that, one thing we didn't cover was, I think we mentioned what we're looking forward to this year, but... I don't know. I guess I didn't mention goals and challenges that, you know, I I personally like to set myself a few goals throughout years. Yeah. And as we'll talk about later on, when it comes to reading books, a few years back, I set myself a goal of reading 12 books in 12 months. But yeah, this year, I think one of my goals will be to make sure I'm doing a bit more me time, a bit more personal hobbies. um, And of course, homebrewing is going to be one of those. Right. So I want to really focus a bit more on actually getting some more brews down this year. Yeah. Yeah. My, my brewing has slowed down a lot as well, but that's also because my drinking has slowed down a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not you don't have to drink it yourself. I beg your pardon? You don't have to drink it all to yourself. No, that's true. I should be generous and share it a bit. That's it. Have people around, barbecues. Yeah, planning to actually this year. Have a few. That'd be nice. Definitely the, the times when I get through the most of the homebrew is when I have people over. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's definitely a novelty for a lot of people, especially having a bar with beer on tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you have any um, personal goals yourself this year? Personal goals? Yeah, I do. So I've got some content that I want to create, uh, which is, you know, obviously a, a quite a lot of stuff around .NET MAUI. Uh, so I've, obviously, I've done the book. I've got a workshop coming up at MDC in about a month. Um, I've got mm. another talk. I've got a lot more talks that I want to present this year. Uh, not all of them on .NET MAUI, actually, but I've got a few .NET MAUI ones, a few security ones, a few other bits and pieces planned. I've also got, as I've alluded to, I've got my own business that, I, that I'm trying to get some traction with. So a goal for this year is to get that product launched out of beta. So I'm, lo- I'm looking to launch it to beta test, external beta testers this month. In all likelihood, that will get pushed back because of the commitment with NDC. Yep. The goal for this year is to get that out of beta and get it actually released. Awesome. Uh, maybe I'll learn something like talking about that, actually. I was going to say, and there is an awesome segue <laughs> into tonight's topic. Yeah. What are we going to talk about? Did you want to introduce it? No, no, you do it. Okay. So tonight we're going to discuss the book, The Lean Startup by Eric Rees. I think it was originally published back in 2011, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Now, have you read this before? I haven't read it. I do own a copy and I haven't got stuck into it yet. Although I did go through a summary of the book, which was actually written by the author. So I've, mm-hmm. kind of, I've, I've got an idea of what's in the book, just not what it actually says. Sure. As I alluded to about seven years, ago I set myself that challenge of 12 books in 12 months this was one of those books yeah so I haven't read it for a good seven years so knowing that this was going to be the topic I've tried to churn through it as much as I can I must confess I've only got about three quarters of the way through this time that's a lot more than I did (laughs) that's all right it's um look it's a good book and I think there's a lot that we take for granted these days you know there's 2011 that's 12 years ago right it's 13 years ago now mate 13 years ago sorry my maths is quite lacking at the moment. I was just going to say that with 13 years of hindsight behind us and learnings, I'm not sure about yourself, but a lot of the stuff that I've picked up in this book, it, it's familiar, but it's good to hear it come from someone who has experienced it back then. Yeah. So for the uninitiated, the concept of the lean startup comes from the manufacturing um, industry. So the idea of lean manufacturing and reducing the waste in manufacturing to optimize the business. So for lean startups, it's the same thing. It's about making sure that you're not adding waste or you're not wasting your resources that be that money, time or personnel. You're not wasting those resources on non-productive tasks. And I think that's that's my five five minute summary or 10 second summary, I should say. Yeah. So I, uh, as I said, I haven't read the, the whole book, but I have been through this summary, which as I mentioned, is written by the author of the book. So hopefully it's fairly reliable. Actually, in a lot of places, it was a, it was an ad for the book. So, you know, he said, yep. oh, you know, and, and then, you know, talks about this and and you really want to understand it, read the book and fair enough. Yeah. yeah. But my, my takeaway, if I had to summarize it, it was like the lean principles, which as you said, originated in manufacturing. He, he talks about the lean management principles from Toyota, which obviously featured quite heavily in the Phoenix project. Correct. 
about before. And, you know, it's the kind of, it's those lean principles that underpin DevOps and Scrum and a lot of the other things that, that we are quite familiar with. But my takeaway from that book was that it was those principles but applied to strategy. Yeah, absolutely. There is a bit of a tech twist to it because obviously they've come from a tech background. So there is that tech twist. So not normally when we talk about this stuff, we're talking about operations, right? You know, it's in the name DevOps, right? So yeah, yeah. normally when we're talking about these kind of principles, we're, we're talking about applying them to operations. But if I've understood the summary correctly, it's about applying those same principles to strategy. Yep, absolutely. So there is a section in the book where he does talk about that and talk about coming from that tech background and applying or coming from the idea of Scrum or as as he highlights in the book, Extreme Programming, where it is all about MVPs and about iterative approach. And he does talk about how he's applying that then to the business, making those decisions. As you said, I think there are some synergies between the two concepts, but at the same time, I think there's, it does, the book kind of goes into it. There's parts where they start to diverge a bit. Yeah. So now what I found interesting when I was going through this book that I kind of remembered from the previous time, but sort of keeps sliding back is this, the idea, as we say, it's about the, this iterative approach about trying little, little experiments and seeing what works and getting these minor tweaks in front of the customers, seeing how the customers react, checking the metrics to make sure that the customers, they're responding in a positive or a negative way to see how your strategy is working or how your strategy needs to be adjusted moving forward. So what I find interesting there is the idea, the concept of um, that he bring, introduces called validated learning. Yeah. Did that come up in the summary? No, no, they didn't mention that. So validated learning is basically about putting together a hypothesis about a strategic change that you think, you know, if we do X, I expect the customer uh, retention rate would go up. And then you can in- introduce that change. And based off running that experiment, then reviewing the metrics, you can actually verify whether or not that change is actually a valid a valid hypothesis, right? Yeah. So early on in the book, he actually defines what his definition of a startup, and that is a startup is a human institution designed to create a new product or service under conditions of extreme uncertainty. Mm. Okay. So one of the important things there is under the conditions of extreme uncertainty. Yeah. To be able to find your way through that uncertainty, we need to identify those experiments that will help us find our way. Oh, can I jump in for a minute? Yeah, go. It's interesting you say that because in the summary that I was making my way through today, that concept of uncertainty came up a lot. And one of the comments or one of the repeated themes was about how in any business, there's risk and there's uncertainty. But in a startup, there's extreme uncertainty. There's more risk, there's more mm-hmm. uncertainty. It's something that's unproven, yeah. usually something that's unproven. And even if it's not necessarily the product or product category itself that's unproven, it's certainly the company. Yep. So there, there is extreme uncertainty. But what they also said, which I thought was really cool, I'll tell you why in a second, was that something along the lines of the most learning or happens at the edge of doubt and the reason I thought that was quite cool is because thinking about everything that you've been saying about experiments testing hypotheses defining the right metrics when you tie that to this concept of the most learning happens at the edge of doubt that's science basically like that's that's exactly what happens in physics like the more the more doubt there is the more you're going to learn yes the more doubt the greater the reward you know if you're doing something that's already known you're not really learning anything new yes absolutely and I think that's what this book starts to highlight that the idea of this lean startup it's about because it's such an iterative learning approach, it's finding your way through that uncertainty and almost applying a scientific approach to it. And look, I don't know if it's the way the book's written or if it is a product of the philosophy of the lean startup, but it does come across that you're going to get more hits than misses if you do apply this approach, right? And again, I don't know if that's a criticism of the way the book's written and if it's all through rose-colored glasses, but it does come across that way that if you follow his formula, then you're going to have a better chance of success. So that's interesting. There's a couple of different ways that you phrased that, right? The first way that you phrased it was, if you follow this approach, you're going to get more hits than misses. Mm-hmm. And the second way you phrased it was, if you follow this approach, you're going to have a greater chance of success. And the reason I, I'm contrasting those two ways of saying it is that my interpretation wasn't necessarily that if you follow this approach, you'll get more hits than misses. It's that if you follow this approach, you will minimize the impact of the misses. Because is the idea not to basically get more of both. 
both get more hits and more misses, but then capitalize on the hits and let the misses go with, without letting them drag you down. I like that idea, minimizing the misses. And I think you've hit it spot on the nose there. I mean, business is un uncertain. As we've said, there's a lot of uncertainties. You are going to have misses. So the idea here is let's minimize that. Let's reduce that waste. And again, this is the lean manufacturing concept of minimizing waste. Yeah. Let, you know, let's not invest too much of our resources or our strategy going down a path that is unvalidated. We don't know if it's right. We don't know if it's accurate, which, and one of the tools that they use for that is the MVP, the minimum viable product. Yeah. And I think we're all familiar with that. Over the last several years or so, and I think there was about five or six years ago, it was a lot more prominent. The book does talk about this, you know, an MVP being, or an experiment the book refers it more to, but uh, a landing page and then running your AB split tests on the wording and the graphics and the layout of those pages to see which one's more attractive to customers, which one's going to bring more customers on board, which one are you going to get more signups from? Mm. To me, that's not a minimum viable product. That's not a product. You're using these experiments to help you define what your product is and what your strategy is. The idea that this landing page itself, I struggle to comprehend how people can call that their MVP. In your experience, have you heard people sort of trying to correlate, say, a landing page or something as basic as that back to the concept of the MVP? Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that because I don't see that in tech circles, but usually that's because we're, we're developers, right? So by the time someone comes to us and says, build this, they've either done that validation and those experiments already, or they're not going to, um, or it's for something internal. I see that concept and that guidance repeatedly given uh, in entrepreneurial circles. Mm -hmm. So on various forums and various different places online uh, where there's entrepreneurial advice, you see it all the time. And, and, I, and I always see people talking about build a landing page, build two landing pages, build three, get people to sign up. And I think this is almost seen now as part of the investment process and part of a way of raising funding is if you're looking for investors to come and give you money to help you build your product, they'll want to see, well, let me see your landing page. How many signups did you get? How many different versions did you do? How much A-B testing? Which versions got more signups? And this idea to me that you would build a landing page and use that to get signups and then use that to validate whether your product is viable in the market before you go and build it is really interesting because obviously that saves you a lot of effort in building a product that no one's going to want. But on the other hand, the idea of sticking a landing page online and saying, sign up to this product and as soon as it's available, you can use it and test it without any idea of whether it's even feasible to build the product. Mm. It's quite horrifying to me. But then again, I have to switch off that tech part of my brain because realistically, we've spoken about this before. If I start thinking like a manager, I, yeah, it's irrelevant whether someone thinks, can this be done? It's irrelevant the thinking about how it can be done. It can be done right? If people want it, it can be built. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's the kind of approach that you need to take and think about it that way. Because obviously the first thing that goes through my mind is the problem solving and the solution mode. And I start thinking, well, how would this be done? How would that be done? when really we're nowhere near that stage yet. I think you're right. There are several anecdotes within the book around that, around the arguments about um, putting your idea out there to public before you've got anything and whether you know your competition might steal the idea and take off without it. And then so obviously his argument there against that is, well, one, chances are your competition's not looking at you you're too small of a fish. They're not even paying attention to what you're doing. Yeah. He's even advised startups and he's like, I'll challenge you. Call up your competition's product team, the, the manager that's directly in charge of the part you're competing with and pitch them your idea. And he's like, chances are they're going to hang up on you anyway. They don't care. They've got too many other things going on. Yeah. They're not looking out for you. They've got their own product backlogs. They've got their own their own battles to, to sort through. So he's like, first and foremost, that's not going to be a concern for you. Secondly, if you are worried that the competition's just going to get a head start in the market and get to the market quicker than you, then you're basically playing in an indefensible field anyway, right? You don't have a USP, mm. right? You don't have a unique selling point. So if they're going to be quicker to market to you, then once you've wasted your, your time, your effort, your money building the product and you get it to market, they may might only be six months behind you and trample completely over you anyway. So wouldn't you rather find that out before you've invested that time? Or would you rather waste your time, waste your money, come to, come to market? Market and then have your competition steamroll over you straight after that before you've had time to build that traction. So yeah. I guess that's his his arguments against 
or his arguments against the arguments for not doing that. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and again, it's a similar sentiment I see echoed in those same entrepreneurial circles. I, I often see people asking for advice about, I've got this idea for a software product or a tech product that I want to build. How do I get it built? And then there's always the questions around, how do I find developers that are trustworthy and aren't going to steal my idea? Do I need NDAs? How do I protect it? So on and so forth. There's always the same feedback, which is ideas are worthless, which isn't actually true, but that's generally the advice you get is that ideas are worthless and everything's in the execution. Now, yep. that part is true because everything is in the execution. In fact, there was that quote I used on, on the show with Nick a few weeks ago when I, when I said that vision without execution is hallucination. Yes. So e execution yes. is the most important part. And I don't agree that ideas are valueless, but putting that aside for a moment, if you can't execute it in a way that's going to be better than how someone else can execute it, then yes, you don't have a USP, you don't have a viable product. Mm -hmm. So that re that's really where your focus should be. And also, like you said, if, if someone else can come and just do what you're going to do, then yeah, you, you don't have a defensible position. You don't have a USP. So in summary, yes, I guess you see these threads and these these questions all the time. How do I protect my idea? How do I protect mm. you know my investment? And the guidance is always don't just build it. And if you don't, you know, if you spend more time worrying about how to protect it than how to build it, someone's going to come along and build it anyway, even yeah. if the, whether they steal your idea or not. If you've had the idea, someone else will have that idea independently. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's always interesting is when you see developers in these discussions like myself, for example, we often give the feedback that how do you protect yourself from a developer stealing your idea? The answer to that, in my opinion, is pay more money for your developer. And that sounds glib, right? But there's actually logic to it. You can go online and you can find someone on Upwork and you can find someone on Fiverr. And chances are you can find someone that's living in an economy where their overheads mm -hmm. are much lower and therefore undercut yep. and charge a lot less. However, that also means that they are more likely to be an independent developer without a reputation that's important to them and that isn't part of their value. If you mm -hmm. contrast that, for example, to the company that I work for, your business, mm -hmm. if we were to steal someone's idea, that would sink our business. That Absolutely. Would so it's not worth it to us. Like no idea is worth the company. Yep. So if you find a reputable company, you know, not only are you going to get better quality product, but you know, a company like the one I work for, for example, and I'm sure you would do the same, would happily sign an NDA if that was what customers ask for. Customers do ask for it, for it and we do sign it. Mm -hmm. But realistically, that's not what's protecting them from us stealing their idea. We're not going to no. do it. Reputation. No, it's your reputation. Exactly. Yeah. If someone comes to us with an idea and we steal it, our reputation is gone. And if we don't have a reputation, then we get we have no customers. Mm -hmm. The businesses you're talking about here, that's the business they want to be consulting. Yeah. We want to be there consulting, helping the customers build great products, yeah. build the relationships with the clients and build awesome products with them. Yeah. Right. These businesses are not in the product-based business. So exactly. it's not something that they are set up for. It's not one of their part of their strategy. So I just want to jump back to the idea of the validated learning. One of the things that I that really jumped out to me this time, and I think even the first time, was the idea of the metrics that he talks about. You plug in your Google Analytics and you get all your, your metrics out of the system how many people jumped on the website how many people signed up how many users do we have today how much revenue are we bringing in each month and in the book he makes the point that you know those metrics at face value they're effectively just vanity metrics what he likes to see come out of the experiments that they run are what they call actionable metrics so this is more of a cohort based metrics so looking at the retention or the returned users or the sign up users um, for that cohort for that month so you can compare month on month not raw numbers but percentages so to speak can you give me some real world examples of vanity metrics versus actionable metrics yep so page 122 there's a graph that he's got in there for his actionable metrics and that's based on the cohort analysis so that's effectively the month by month analysis of users and in there we've got registered users but didn't log in logged in had one conversation, had five conversations and had paid versus I guess your vanity metrics would be just straight up. How many users do we have registered on the system? How much money are we getting in right. as a top line value? So the thing that most people would look at, how many hits are we getting on our website? How many people just logged in over time? But because they're over time, if you run an experiment, you can't really tell how much that change affects the user base 
So as with any scientific experiment, when you make one little change, you want to change one variable at a time, right? And see how that affects the overall system. So if you're making this one change and you're looking at the overall metrics at that high level, that vanity level, it's quite hard to make a correlation between the two. Did the change in the vanity metric, was that based on this one small experiment we ran or was it based on something else that happened? Was there um, an advertising campaign that we did elsewhere, right? But what we can do, what they do there by using the actionable metrics, sort of the, the more cohort-based analysis, okay, so of the users that registered this month, how many logged in more than one time? How many added their credit card details? How many actually paid this month? And then you make your change. And so next month when you do it again, again, it's a percentage on the users within that cohort within that month. So you can compare the two months based on the percentages as opposed to looking at the high-level metrics and seeing the fluctuations in those big numbers, but not really being able to attribute those changes to the experiments that you're running. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's one of the big takeaways I took from sort of early on in the book. Gosh, as I'm flicking through this book while we're talking, I'm just picking up a lot of tidbits that I've highlighted one of the things toward that I was looking at too is there's a chapter on do you pivot or you persevere? Yeah. And identifying when is it time to pivot? When are your, or as he says in there, when are the growth engines starting to, to slow down and is it time to actually make a pivot? And I don't know about you, but I find that term pivot quite heavily used within the startup ecosystem. People are like, oh, you know, this it's not working. I'm just going to pivot completely and try something different. In the book, he counters that by saying, you know, he defines the pivot as keeping one foot in the ground and to, and pivoting on the other foot, right? Exactly what a human would pivot like. So in that space, no, you're not throwing everything out. Um, you know, you're not throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater. You're actually maintaining some of your product or some of your strategy and you're choosing a different type of pivot. And he does have a list of different types of pivots in there, like a customer segment pivot or a product pivot, a platform type pivot. But it's based off the learnings you already have from your previous conversations with customers from the previous experiments, you can now influence the way that the organization decides to pivot when the time comes. Right. And the reason I bring this up is because, again, in that space, he's talking about the company he started up was being quite successful, was early on, was had good traction. And then they got to a point where everything started to slow down. And that's because they realized at that stage, as they transitioned their user base from what is known as the early adopters towards the mainstream. And as he identifies in the book early on too, is, you know, your early adopters, the early adopters are those that are there that are willing to take a risk on you. By nature, they want to be the first on your platform. Mm. They want to be the first ones to use your product. They want to go and brag to their mates that they were the first yeah. ones there. They're the, you know, the people that have a Gmail account that is exactly their name. They're the people who have the three-letter Twitter accounts. They're those that just wanted to come on as early as they can, just bragging rights for whatever reason. And they're willing to take that risk that your product is not going to be perfect. And they're willing to take that risk that, or even be a part of the growth of that product because they believe in the product, they believe in your strategy or your vision, and they want to help you get there. But then you're going to get to a point where you saturate that early adopter market and you start becoming more mainstream. And at that point, your strategy needs to change mm. because the mainstream market are not as accepting of bugs. They're not as accepting of things changing left, right and center under the covers for them. And that's where all of this ties back together because they're running all their experiments. They've got their actionable metrics coming back. They're able to identify their growth engine, so to speak, is slowing down. And I think he admits that they took this on a bit too late and they probably could have done it a bit earlier. But the idea being that you identify that your metrics are slowing down, then you can start to consider the pivot. And not so much a pivot is in saying, okay, well, we're going to change the product altogether and we're going to go to a different market or something different, but we're just going to pivot our strategy. I think one of the strategies he uses in there is the MVPs move from being in the production environment into a sandbox environment, right? So you're then protecting your mainstream users that, that can't handle that instability or don't want things to change so frequently, but you can still run your MVPs, but they're in sort of a more of a sandbox environment. Yeah. So it's really interesting how it all ties back together. And so he's got the lean startup feedback loop which is how all this ties back together. And that's building the MVP, 
measuring the output, learning from those results, which then feed into new ideas, which then you can build on, build your next MVP, next iteration, release that, measure those results, take your learnings and keep iterating that way. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, certainly there's a perception. Uh, no, I'm speaking out of turn here. I, I can't say this with any kind of conviction at all. My perception is that the term pivot is used by Silicon Valley bro types who, you know, they've got some money, they've got access to some investors. Their goal is to create a startup, not that they have a product or a vision or a strategy. Their goal is just, we're going we're gonna to create a startup and a company. And that's, you know, my I, I kind of create an association with the word pivot with those kind of uh, yep. images of those kind of stereotypes of those people, which is that we're going to, we're just going to do something and we've got access to money. So if it doesn't work, we're going to do something else. Whereas I think if I understand correctly, what you're actually saying is it's more along the lines of, well, we've built this product and this product is built around this core feature and this core feature does X and we've got a thousand users and 800 of them are using X for three hours a week and using feature Y, which we added just tacked on, you know, 20 hours a week. So we're going to pivot to focus on feature Y because that's actually what people are using. Absolutely. And look, you're not the only one, right? I associate the word pivot exactly the same way you did. Right. I don't like the the name. It just, it sounds like a cop out. Oh, what we did yesterday didn't work. So let's try something different tomorrow. Yeah. But I've just opened up the book here. He's got his catalog of pivots. The zoom in pivot, basically, like you said, you've got a new, fe- there's a feature that's showing more promise than you realize. So you're going to zoom in and, and make a product out of that feature. The zoom out pivot, which I guess is the opposite. The customer segment pivot. So you've identified that a particular customer segment is showing more promise than others. So you're going to really zoom in and focus on that one customer. A customer need pivot, a platform pivot. So I guess instead of selling a product, you transition into more of a platform play. A business architecture pivot, a value capture pivot, an engine of growth pivot, a channel pivot, and a technology pivot. So there's a a few different types of pivots, but for me, the big standout was the idea that you're not throwing everything away. Mm. It's not just, oh, we're not gaining traction, so we're going to try something different. Like you highlighted then, it was that zoom in pivot of, okay, here's a product or here's a feature that we can now turn into a product Mm. or here's a customer segment. Let's focus on them instead of going so broad. Like let's adjust our strategy to focus on one customer segment. All right, let, let me give you an example and tell me if you think this is a good example of a pivot. Did you see that movie Encanto? Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, a while ago. Yeah. So for, for anyone that hasn't seen it, this is a, a Disney movie and it's about a girl who is a member of a magical family. And there's a bit of a crisis in this family. And, and that's what this movie is about. This girl is one of a bunch of sisters essentially they're all they're all the grandchildren of this kind of matriarch of this family and each of the sisters or cousins or what have you has their own special brand of magic so one of them is you know really beauty obsessed and she's got this you know she's skinny and she's got this long flowy hair and you know she when she sings her song there's all like flowers growing all around her Mm. this other one is has super strength and she's you know she's built like a tank and you know she lifts up carts and cows and stuff and yeah that's how she helps out the village and stuff is with her her some strength mm-hmm. so disney created of course a merchandising strategy because all of these movies are really just um, very expensive toy ads right these days yep so they create a strategy and they uh, create some forecasting and and some expected sales metrics or some expected sales for each of the different toys so what they did was they manufactured a whole load of the toys for this you know this beauty focused sister mm-hmm. um, and they manufactured f- fewer toys of of all the other ones because that was the one they were expecting because that they of course believed that all the young girls would be obsessed with the Disney princess and you know the beauty focused one and and that would be yep. their main selling toy and of course they just sat there wasting away on the shelves and the, and the ones for the, the super strong one they all flew off the shelf and sold out within a day or two mm. because for some reason Disney decided to underestimate young girls and their target demographic and thought that young girls would be far more interested in beauty than in strength and they sure were proved wrong on that so of course what they had to do was was then redirect their funding and investment into manufacturing the other kind of toy which yeah. I, look, I see that as, I don't know if that's the full pivot. I think to turn that into the pivot that I'm thinking, like this zoom in type pivot, it's you see the attraction for the other character and it's not just replacing the toys on the shelf with this new character, but it's also then identifying what 
other merchandise can we make specific to this character? Right, yes. Let's throw all the resources at everything else we can do to maximize the value we're getting from that one character. Yeah, so this is all hypothetical, right? But let's say the original tie-in strategy was like, well, we're going to sell all these toys, but then we're going to sell, you know, a hairbrush and a little mirror and all this sort of stuff that's going to be branded with, you know, character A. And now they're saying, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to sell dumbbells that are going to be branded for character B. Yeah, and we're going to sell gym memberships. And, you know, we're going to change the strategy and we're going to go completely out of left field, but towards that other character. Yeah. Just tying this back to the very first thing you said. At that point, when you make that decision, that's actually validated. Exactly. This is what the market is telling you. And this is what your customers are telling you with actionable metrics. Exactly. So, I mean, the big mistake there is that they put all their eggs in the first character's basket too early, right? Yeah. Before getting those metrics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, they're Disney. I'm sure they can swallow it. (laughs) Not a big deal. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, okay. So one more thing too I want to talk about is back to the idea of the MVP and being able to run experiments on such a regular basis. Or And yep. again, we've got the metrics here. We've got the potential to pivot at any point in time. How does it sit with you then that the work you might be doing today or the work you might spend the next two or three sprints on and you, you end up getting this new feature out and then it goes to market, you're not getting the results. The hypothesis that you were testing actually fails or it's proven incorrect. So you grab that piece of work that you spent so much time doing and you've put all your love and energy into and rip it out of the product and throw it in the bin. I do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm literally, that's what I'm working on this week in my day job. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of the nature of it. And and I'll go back to one of my favorite sayings, which is admittedly a saying from me. um, And I've said this before, and I'm I'm sure there's a, there's an actual quote from someone who's actually smart, but um, I always like to say maintainable code is not code that you don't have to refactor. It's code that you can refactor. And I think the same applies, not just to code, but to products and features in general. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because I've been guilty of it in the past where put your blood, sweat and tears into getting a feature developed. And yeah, it's hard to just rip it out because it hasn't shifted the metrics as much as you'd expect. Liam, are you saying that building a product and continuing to work on that product for years or even decades when the product is not gaining market share uh, and is not achieving the goals that you set out for it, are you saying that that's not a good strategy? Well, no, it's not a good strategy, but I mean, we're all human, right? And we all take pride in our work and engineers, engineers being engineers, right? Take pride in what they produce. And, you know, we all want to make sure we're doing, we're doing the best we can. And I I get it. And as I'm saying this, I'm hearing myself speak, right? And I get it. But seeing the code that you've worked on and that you've really put some time into, to just get completely thrown away and said, no, that doesn't work. That's not, or it's not valuable. It can be a bit, it can, it can, your ego can take a hit. It's demoralizing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, this isn't an engineer question or an engineer concern. This is a product manager, product owner concern. Absolutely. And I think this is what you said before. It's even as engineers ourselves, you need to be able to put on that product owner hat and be able to say, okay, well, how valuable is this feature to the end product? And, you know, admittedly, it might sound at face value that it is. Everyone's invested in it. The whole team's invested in adding this one feature. But when it goes live, well, the public speak and everyone's assumptions were proven incorrect. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to lie and try and pretend that I don't care when that sort of thing happens. I'm not going to pretend that I don't have an ego and I'm not going to pretend that I don't get emotionally invested in the products and features that I build. Of course, all those things are true. However, I think the approach that I take is that I consider myself very lucky to have a career where I get to just do something I enjoy. And I just mm-hmm. like I just like writing code, right? If I've built a feature or a product that I'm proud of, if no one uses it and it goes in the bin, well, that's not really my problem because I'm not the one that's invested in it. I'm not the product owner. I'm just happy to have built it and I'm happy to be able to come to work the next day and, and write something else. Yep. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I did this talk, my, my book launch talk. We, we've mentioned it before on the show. Mm-hmm. show. Um, one of the questions that came up in the Q&A at the end was something along the lines of, how will you feel if Microsoft uh, retire this technology that your book is about? Would you feel that that was wasted? And no. And again, I'm not going to pretend I don't have an ego and, and that I wouldn't be bummed out by that. Of course I would. And, you know, aside from anything else, I want this technology to succeed. I love the technology enough to write a book about it. So, of course, I'm yep. going to see it succeed. But the point that I made in response to that question is, 
is that, well, I'll still have written the book. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if the technology goes away, my book's not going away. I've still written a book and that's still something I'm glad to have done and proud of. So I, it's a massive tangent here, but you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question about how, how do I feel if I put all that effort and blood, sweat, and tears into something and then the experiment proves that the market doesn't want it. Yeah, disappointed, but at the end of the day, the reason that I do this job and the thing that motivates me is the doing of the work, not necessarily the success of the product. I have the luxury of being employed by an employer who has to take on that worry and that concern. And, and we have clients that take on that worry and concern. And this is why, you know, I, I left a career in management and leadership to get back on the tools because this is just what I enjoy and, and mm-hmm. I'm just lucky enough to be able to come in and write code and build things every day. Let's make this a little bit more personal if we can. Okay. The product you were talking about earlier tonight, yeah. and you hope to go into a beta release within the next month or so, I think you said. Yeah. If you're getting no traction, if your metrics are coming back and you're not getting the, the results you're expecting from there, what does that look like for you? Well, the thing that I'm building, I, it kind of already is validated and it's validated by the fact that I was asked to build it. This isn't my idea. that I was asked to build it by my partner who is a solicitor. She asked me to build this because she was pissed off that it didn't exist and um, for her for her work mm-hmm. you know i i even do a, a bit of research to see if there's anything out there that does this and when i started building it there wasn't now there is something kind of similar not the same thing at all it's kind of a little bit similar and it's locked behind a walled garden for another product so it's not really a competitor but the point is that's more sort of validation so as far as i'm concerned at the moment the market does want this product so if i build it and i get some testing out there get some metrics people aren't using it. I don't get the results I want. It doesn't get the traction that I want. What does that look like to me? What well, it looks like I'm doing something wrong and I'm either doing something wrong in my marketing or my execution or what have you. But at that point, I wouldn't be concerned that the product wasn't viable and wasn't feasible and wasn't valid. I would be concerned that I was doing something wrong. And if I had read this book and if I understood well how to gather actionable metrics, I would hopefully be able to analyze those metrics and figure out exactly what it is that I'm doing wrong. Now, if I were to do that and fix it, and you know, if it's six or 12 months later or two years later, and I find out that the product just isn't viable, or you know, yes, people want it, but they don't want it enough to pay for it, or they don't want it enough to pay enough money for it to make it a viable business. Mm. What I feel, I would feel disappointed, right? But then I would move on to something else. And again, I, I, don't, I don't want to pretend that I don't have an ego and that I wouldn't be bruised by that and I wouldn't be bummed out by it. Of course I would. I've taken so many hits like that I'm kind of just used to it and I'm kind of just used to pivoting in the bro sense of the word right just just moving on to the next idea and i think this happened with me quite young when i was like 14 or 15 years old i had my first million dollar product idea and someone beat me to market with it i say someone i mean actually a significant electronics corporation developed and patented this product and i was like a teenager with no idea even how to get started building it It was just an idea and then i had another idea which was an absolute genius brilliant idea and i was like yeah i can i can create this product and it has real value and people would want it and yeah and i didn't know anything about how to do that kind of thing and I never did anything with it and I think maybe eventually this is actually a physical product not a software product and I think maybe 10 years ago five years ago I built a prototype and the prototype didn't work because I I bought it with bits and pieces that I picked up at Bunnings and it didn't work it didn't work the way that I wanted to do and I kind of lost focus and lost motivation and this is now something that someone has created and that you can buy and that Mm -hmm. I can see people are using so I guess I've gotten used to the idea of being disappointed that my incredibly valuable ingenious million dollar billion dollar idea has already been done by someone else quicker than me better than me and that I need to move on to something else Mm. I think one last thing too in what you've just said there reminds me of a topic within the book is again it's this idea around the pivot and it's identifying when when that startup is I think he uses the term living in the land of the dead Mm. right you're successful enough that your vanity metrics look good but your, your actionable metrics are not actually showing what you they're not adhering or not aligning to your targets so at, at a high level it looks like the company's doing all right but at that fine grain level you know you're not getting the traction you're expecting you're not growing at the rate that you're expecting like that's part of that decision of is it time now to pivot mm. and one of the things i noticed in the book i think it's he's uses it as an example i don't think he's using it as a this is always the case but i think this comes back to that like you were talking about 
like the the term pivot in the Silicon Valley sort of bro entrepreneur. Bro entrepreneur. Bro. bro <laughs> we'll use your version. <laughs> is this idea that if your growth is not at that you know the exponential hockey stick growth that's blowing through the roof, then you're on a sinking ship. Mm-hmm. And to me, I personally I don't like that idea. Right. Yeah. It's for me the idea of getting into a startup is not about can I get a billion dollar exit. Yeah. One of the yeah one of the examples was you know growing it's growing reasonably but it's just not hitting that viral growth that hockey stick exponential uh, growth curve and i was interested to hear about your thoughts on that in a similar vein to your thoughts around the strategy of the pivot and whether or not are people trying to pivot too early trying to achieve these astronomical growth curves Mm. well i think it's kind of it's well understood that at the moment you know the word the word startup is a loaded term right and you mentioned his definition about it being a human endeavor and early on but here's the thing right a startup should mean a business within really within its early growth phase right but what it's come to mean is that hockey stick exponential mm. growth type business and and the reason is yeah we might think of a startup or a new business as entrepreneurs as a company that is getting established and has a plan and a strategy and a growth strategy and a strategy to make money by selling a product or service to customers right mm-hmm. but what's happening in silicon valley and you know wall street and and wherever else where this term startup is being used at the moment is that's actually not the strategy. The strategy is not ever to create a successful product or service or company. The strategy is to extract money from investors, basically. So the strategy yeah. to grow and, and that, that growth that you're talking about, that hockey stick growth is not even, they don't even care about how many customers you, they have or you know how viable their product is. And the, the vanity metrics are more important because they're the ones that they're selling on. And what they're doing is they're convincing people to buy their shares and invest in their business. And you know they're growing their wealth that way. And that's the kind of growth that they're, they're stoking those flames for and then of course they're going to cut and run and you know the business will fail and everyone they'll make a whole load of money and and all the mum and dad investors who have sunk their savings and they're super into it or what have you they're the ones that are going to lose out and that that's a real problem and it, it's kind of a well well known problem at the moment mm, i completely agree with that there are the obvious few that are the standout to that uber has never been profitable yep. you know they keep growing and they, their net worth keeps growing because the share prices are going up and people are spending money and investing money in uber but they've never been profitable mm. i don't know if the plan is ever to be profitable i mean that that's quite a significant bubble just that one on its own and it's yep. not a bubble in isolation absolutely so let me ask you a question right i've been racking my brains about who do i know right who can i think of that i could ask for real world experience you know how how well do these strategies and these concepts from this book how do they apply so i've been racking my brains who do i know that's the founder of a startup who could i ask about this who do i know that has uh, kicked off a start startup in the last 12 months. Me? Yeah. Well, that's right. And, you know, I'm learning, right? And look, to be honest, I should have read this book eight months ago, nine months ago. Again, I should have re reread this. Yes, it's targeted towards a product-based company, but service-based companies, like there's a lot you can take out of that too. As a service company, yes, there's a lot I can, I've learned. And, you know, we're always, I'm always growing. I'm always learning. As I'm bringing more customers on board, as I'm growing, yes, I'll start getting those metrics that I can start working against. But I think that's a valid point, right? I think I really need to start looking at what what my metrics are and not just looking at what my website metrics are, but being able to identify the difference between my vanity and my actionable metrics Mm. um, and figuring out what an MVP for me is. I do know my target customer base. Honestly, I haven't identified who my early adopters are. And and these are things that, you know, strategically speaking, I need to really, after flicking through this book, I really need to start focusing on, right? And don't know if we've spoken about on this podcast before because I've spoken to a few people recently, but I understand as a young service-based company, as much as I personally have 20 plus years of industry experience, as a company, we don't have that much experience. So larger enterprises are going to struggle to be able to take me on as a consultant because I may not have the longevity or the reputation that they require. Mm. So then they're your mainstream customers, right? I'm figuring this out right now as I'm speaking. I never really actually thought about this until right now. Right. It's being able to identify who those early adopters are. Yeah. Okay. In the background, I have thought, you know, I can't be targeting larger enterprises because they're not going to be in a position to be able to take the risk on me. And I, I appreciate that. But being able to categorize them as mainstream and then being able to create a category for the early adopters, then being able to add certain attributes to this category of, of early adopters. Those are willing to take a risk. Those are willing to help out a smaller startup like myself. And 
now once I can create that category, I can start actually identifying specific customers for that in that space. And I can mm. start looking at the marketing strategies for those early adopters. But on top of that, I had some interesting conversations in this last week or two with people that could actually add a lot more context into this topic of startups too. Right. A good friend of mine has recently started a, a peer-to-peer gig-based platform. So she's sort of in the, I think in the beta stage of that one. And then through her, I've started to make acquaintances in that industry. So hopefully down the track, we'll be able to have conversations with people that have solid experience in this space. Mm, that'd be cool. Yeah. So what about yourself, Matt? Have you taken any learnings away from either this discussion or from your review of the book, the summary of the book or the project that you're working on? Yeah, I think articulating the point earlier about if I don't get the traction, it's because I'm doing something wrong. I, th- I think just articulating that kind of crystallized that idea in my mind because I've got a, a marketing strategy for the product and I've got a growth strategy for it. But while the, the product itself is definitely validated, those strategies are not at all. Yep. So, I, you know, really, I have no idea how to do them, let alone whether they're going to succeed. And, and I, I think I would definitely need to put some time into making those endeavors measurable so that if things aren't going the way that I want them to go, I can look at data that's going to tell me or at least give me some indication of how or what I need to change. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had that as a nebulous concept in my mind and articulating it has, has kind of crystallized that a lot. I think as for the rest of it, I think it's kind of, it's really pulling in, you know, I haven't read the whole book as I said, and and I may be oversimplifying, but kind of phrasing it as I did earlier, which is it's taking lean principles and applying them to strategy. I think it's kind of helping me understand it because those lean principles are things that we're kind of already familiar with. Yeah. And it's all about minimizing waste, Yeah, wasted resources, wasted money, wasted time. As I've said before, it's about identifying hypotheses that you want to test, generating the experiments for them, running those experiments, and then iterating based off that feedback loop. Yeah, and that's more or less the scientific method. Exactly. Mm. Don't know if he uses it in the book, but that's why I use the term hypotheses, right? Yeah. It sort of yeah. really drives home. It's it's a scientific approach. Yeah, that's cool. Look, I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to read the book. So actually, I bought it on Audible because I had a credit and I got that summary on Audible as well, which is free. Any, any you know Anyone can yeah. just listen to that summary on Audible and it's probably elsewhere as well. And I will listen to the book, but having listened to the summary and especially having spoken to you about this tonight, I'm actually going to just buy the book as well and just read it. Yeah, okay. So interesting. Interesting. Um, Audible. I never got into it. Right. Just as a little aside, if we're going to, I think we can put to bed the lean startup at the moment, but Audible, I just, I can't do audio books. Interesting. I just, I think I tune out. I just zone out too easily oh. and I just don't pay attention to what's going on. That definitely happens. But you know what? I do that when I'm reading print books too. <laughs> um, yes, to a lesser extent, but I think that kind of tuning out and zoning out is kind of part of the reason why I got into it in the first place. So I first got into audio books and Audible when I started getting into long distance running. Yep. And the reason was, yeah, a lot of people like to listen to music when they run. And I like to listen to music when I run as well, but on shorter runs. On a longer run, the idea of the music is to help you kind of zone out and just not be focused on the pain or anything else or what have you. But that doesn't work for me because I, I don't tune out. But if I listen to an audio book, yeah, if, I, if I'm out for a, a three hour run, you know, and I'm listening to a good book, that's to me just three hours of listening to a good book. And I just happen to be running rather than going for a run and having some background and having some music on it. Background. Interesting. I call me strange, but I can't do it. I run yeah. with nothing, no music, nothing. I just, I'll go and I can run and I'll run for hours. I find it time to think. I find it time to myself. As I say to everyone on every long distance run I do, I'll solve all the world's problems and I get to the end and I forget about it all. Yeah. I don't know. I just like that time to myself. I've never been one to run with headphones on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've done that too. And I, I do enjoy that sometimes. In fact, there's an organization that I used to run with which you're familiar with i think your, your wife has run and yeah. swam with them as well and they don't permit you to have earphones in because it's a social it's a social running yeah. group right? that's a big aspect of it so you absolutely can't have headphones so mo- most of my long distance running has been done without headphones but then with that said i'm kind of not on my own i'm in a group of people so yeah mo- most of my long distance runs where i've been on my own i've, I've had an audiobook on race day right so you know running a marathon or doing an Ironman you're certainly not allowed anything like that no and look even some of the trails that I've done before they say on certain sections there's no headphones Mm. just it's too dangerous like if someone wants to pass you behind you you need to be able to hear them coming past or you need to be able to hear them saying I'm passing because the it's just single trail stuff that's too narrow yeah yeah makes sense 
The other one I haven't gotten into is ebooks. Right. I, I don't know. I just need, or I like that physical, holding the physical book. Now, a funny anecdote, but my entire life, I hated reading. Right. Absolutely hated reading. And then seven years ago, my wife convinced me to go oh, visit the optometrist and go for an eye test. Mm. Sure enough, I needed glasses. Right. And when I got glasses, I realized that reading was not as difficult as I thought it was. Wow. Wow. And then that's when I started to challenge myself to reading 12 books in 12 months. Wow. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that story at all. Yeah. So... It's it's funny. Like I read twelve books in, or actually, it turned out to be thirteen books in that twelve months. I miscalculated somewhere. When seriously, in the previous twelve years, I would have probably read a half a dozen books maximum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I just I like having the physical book. I like being able to to flip the pages to hold it. So I'm the same. Like I really do love physical books. I, I had to force myself to break that habit, which is why I've switched to eBooks now. Because I, yeah. I I I was at the other extreme. Like I I wouldn't say I've always loved reading when I was kind of in primary school I didn't enjoy reading it wasn't until I was about 11 or 12 and I and I read a book that I absolutely loved and you know wasn't yeah I, I read a book that I wanted to read as opposed to reading a book that teachers said I had to read yep. and I, I, I've had a, a lifelong love of reading since since I was about 11 but I've also had a lifelong obsession with books um, so I, I kind of had what I considered a fairly unhealthy habit of buying books. Um, in particular, I used to love going into sort of secondhand bookshops and, and you know, I just had stacks and stacks of, of books. Uh, I broke that habit when I banned myself from buying any books for myself for 12 months. So I was allowed yep. to buy books for people as gifts, but I wasn't allowed to buy any books for 12 months. So now I tend to predominantly read eBooks. I mm-hmm. still love physical books. And if someone, I think, I think of physical books now as gifts. So if someone buys me a print book, I'd be overjoyed. And, you know, I still buy people print books as gifts. But yep. if I buy a book for myself to read, I tend to buy an ebook. And part of that is also, aside from that unhealthy book habit, was is uh, convenience. So when I left the cold, frozen wastes of the UK to move over here, uh, I couldn't bring that extensive collection of books with me but i couldn't bring a little e-reader right yep. and but nowadays it's even better because they've got backlights and not only do they have backlights but they've got like red tinted backlights so i can oh, just yeah. sit there in bed without a lamp on and just read this thing on a very soft glowing red screen which means that it doesn't affect the melatonin and i can still sleep well and yeah that's, that's that's the convenience factor interesting so matt what were you drinking tonight uh, tonight liam i was actually uh the wdd i was the whiskey driven dev I, I was having a scotch tonight um and and not one that I'm particularly proud of. Actually, it's not necessarily one I'm ashamed of either. This was uh, an Aldi Aldi Scotch, and it's forty bucks a bottle. Yeah, and it's not very good, but it's very good for forty bucks a bottle. And uh, <laughs> it's it's not my it's not my staple. Well, actually, sorry, it is my staple, really. But you know, I, I have other scotches on the shelf. Mm-hmm. But if I'm spending hundred and twenty bucks on a bottle of scotch, I want to make sure I'm only drinking it. Yep. on a special occasion you know there was actually a point a few years ago where i was sort of spending 120 bucks on a bottle of scotch a week and it's too much yeah i still buy those but they're not my staple if it's just you know just fancy a scotch i'll have one of these aldi ones because they're actually yeah pretty good for price i'm not a big scotch drinker or a whiskey drinker i should say and i generally only have one bottle open at a time so it tends to be either something if i'm flying somewhere you know you're through the airport find a yeah. good bar on either side I got a bottle recently for Christmas that I keep forgetting that's there, so I need to crack that open and have a taste. But, yeah, I'm not one to say, here, I've got a really good one or I've got a variety open. I'll just generally get through one, and then once that's done, I'll top it up with, or I'll get the next one after that. For me, I'll just go down to the bottle shop or I'll go wherever I am and try something different. I like to try different things. I don't really have a standard or a go-to. Mm. So I, just, I don't drink whiskey enough to have a standard. So I went to the home brew. This is a brew that I had on, but it wasn't a beer. Right. So you might have been the WDD. I was the MDD today. Oh, was it mead? This was a mead. Uh-huh. But yeah, I brewed, yeah. yeah, I brewed this. I think I mentioned it one of the early episodes that I had it brewing. Yeah. And it, look, it turned out all right. I think it's the second meet I've made, second or third. By no means do I do it a lot, but yeah, it turned out all right. When I brewed it, I added some extra orange peel and some cinnamon. Yeah, can't taste it. Right. Can't taste it. I still get the honey, the honey overtones, but there's nothing else to it. There's no other depth to, to the flavor. That's interesting. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. 
turned out good because you know we did we did mention it on an early episode and i mentioned at the time that it would have gone great uh, a friend of ours had a, a viking themed party i mentioned this that's on it. the show that's right. great, that party. Um, as it turned out that friend ended up as a guest on the show a few weeks later that's right it was it was yuli it was yuli yeah i should send him a bottle yeah he'd appreciate that for sure I'll have to get him back on well that's been awesome liam and i really as i mentioned earlier i've got a bit of a hunger to read this book now so um definitely definitely whet my appetite for it and you know a lot of what you've been talking about tonight has definitely hit home and resonated and there's been a lot of scenarios uh, so i'm definitely definitely keen to read the book so thanks for bringing it up this evening that's awesome and i'm excited to hear what the outcomes for your experiments are for your product that you're going to release yeah i'm i'm excited to develop those experiments <laughs> all right well sounds like we've got a lot to report back on uh, to follow up on this episode in the future yeah. until then i'm matt goldman and i'm liam elliott Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dorawal and Darkinjung land. 